1: Hey, you guys, this episode of Other People is brought to you by the Litbreaker Ad Network. Litbreaker helps book publishers, authors, and premium brands reach an engaged audience of authors, artists, editors, agents, producers, bloggers, media professionals, and readers. Lots of readers. Litbreaker ads appear on The Rumpus, Large Hearted Boy, HTML Giant, Full Stop, The Nervous Breakdown, Plowshares, and other high quality magazines and blogs featuring literary, arts-oriented, and pop culture content and above-the-fold advertising. Visit LitBreaker.com for more information about advertising packages. LitBreaker is also accepting new partner sites in literary, general interest, mystery, creative writing, young adult romance, and other book genres. That's the LitBreaker Ad Network, an ad network for the literary, arts, and culture web. Be sure to visit LitBreaker.com for more information. It's an ad network for smart, interesting, readerly people. Go and advertise on it. Oh my god.
2: You are not alone. You have found other people.
3: You and I have a friend in common.
1: Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done.
3: I think it's really beautiful.
1: Jake
4: West struggle, you
1: know. It was incredible, you know, it's like your
3: head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy.
1: Just one person at just one time. Right. (laughs) Right. Okay, everybody. Here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is what you downloaded. This is my attempt at creating high-quality
0: content. Thank you for being here. Thank you for listening. My name is Brad Listy. I'm here in Los Angeles, and it is good to be with you.
1: Uh, A lot to get to today. I want to start with a, a letter I received from a listener. Uh, It was actually an email from a listener named Buddy, who writes, Dear Brad, I'm not the type of person who writes letters to podcasts. I am uncomfortable with every female guest's introduction as, quote, the lovely and talented, end quote. And uh, I'll interrupt here. Uh, I'll interrupt the letter to let uh, people who are listening for the first time Uh, in on what's happening here. So for those of you who might be new to the program, I often introduce female guests in this manner, the lovely and talented so-and-so. So Buddy continues. Lovely implies some sort of aesthetic quality. While many of your guests are, quote, attractive women, their attractiveness is ostensibly not why they're featured on your show. They're featured as human beings who write books We should try and uncouple the notions of women's talent and aesthetic qualities and avoid implying that
0: these things do or should go together for women to be successful so that maybe attitudes about gender are in part less shitty by the time your daughter and my little sisters are grown women. Yours in brotherly feminism, buddy. So...
1: Uh, point taken, you know, I, that all makes uh, sense to me. I see that. I see the merit in the notion of uncouple, uh, uncoupling talent and aesthetic qualities for women. But uh, if I'm being honest, there's also a part of me that's like, uh, Jesus, like you can't even call a woman lovely anymore. Like, uh, and, and, you know, even if she's on your show and you're interviewing her about her work, it's just... It feels frustrating to me because I don't mean it in a pervy way. I'm not trying to be gross. I'm trying to be nice, just like gentlemanly. Like who doesn't like to be called lovely? So, I don't know. Maybe, you know, maybe I'll stop or maybe uh, I'll continue defiantly against the trend. Uh, If any women out there want to write to me and let me know uh, your thoughts on this, I'd be interested to hear. I'd be interested to know if, uh, you know,
0: a bunch of my female listenership is out there cringing every time I say that. Uh, Or on the other hand, if you don't mind it at all, you know, don't mind it at all,
1: uh, I'd like to know that too. So if you want to email me, the address is letters at otherpeoplepod.com. everything's so delicate you know uh anyway thanks for the letter buddy i appreciate it that's good food for thought my first guest is alexander maxik his uh, new novel a marker to measure drift is
0: due out from knopf on july 30th 2013 Uh, it also happens to be the official july selection of the tnb book club The
1: Nervous Breakdown Book Club. For those of you who are unaware, The Nervous Breakdown is my online culture magazine and literary community. Uh, It has its own book club. For only $9.99 a month, you get a brand new title delivered to your door every 30 days. So, that's a pretty good deal. That's less than the cost of a movie ticket. Uh, In many places, it's less than the cost of a cocktail. And uh, it's also less than the cost of a book in most cases. Uh, And better yet, all book club authors are featured here on this program. Uh, Usually they sit for the full hour, uh, but with an author like Xander, who has already been on the show, uh, I will do a a shorter interview. Uh, Xander was my guest way back uh, in episode 10, which you can hear via the Other People app and premium access. So... Uh, if you'd like to sign up for the TNB Book Club, you can do so over at the nervousbreakdown.com. Just click on Book Club
0: in the menu bar and away you go. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond,
1: So all of that business aside, uh, let's get on with the program. This here is Alexander Maxick, and his new novel, once again, is called A Marker to Measure Drift.
4: Yeah, I mean, I I think, you know, I I wanted to live in a city, um, and I was sort of considering three different cities, um, and it just, New York seemed to make the most sense.
1: What were the other two?
4: Los Angeles and, and, and moving back to Paris but paris just seemed too expensive and um... and l.a. i just i don't know i was close i was i was really considering it but somehow i just couldn't i wanted to be around i wanted to be in a place where i didn't have to drive and where i felt like i could wander around the way i'd like to do in paris and and i just i couldn't imagine doing that in 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 l.a. and and i just and i don't know as many writers in in los angeles and i wanted to be around I wanted to be around writers I, I wanted a community of writers
1: okay, so when you or go or, to-
4: I, or, I, or I thought
1: I did right <laughs> and then you then you actually started hanging out with them <laughs> yeah so uh, but I mean yeah. in terms of like proximity to the you know because it's what is it now it's now the big five because of random penguin um, it's no longer the big six but in in terms of having proximity to those big conglomerate publishers, the big houses um Do you find that that has been helpful? Like, have you got, have you gained access to people that you otherwise wouldn't have access to? Have you met people who you think can help you in your career? If you were talking to a young writer, would you say, definitely move to New York because this is going to be useful to you?
4: Um, I mean, you know, I, I, I was, I had a, um, a deal already, you know, before I moved to New York so i wasn't really interested in in proximity to you know to other other publishing houses um it's certainly been great to be you know to have have the possibility of having you know lunch with my editor and to and to you know sort of know personally the people who will be working on this book i think that's that's a big advantage um if for no other reason that you know gives me peace of mind i prefer to have relationships with people face to face rather than always on the phone um as to whether or not it's it's good for me I don't really know yet I mean I don't know how I don't know how being in New York will translate I mean I've certainly met editors at magazines um and I've you know I've gotten some writing jobs because I think I've I've been in New York and I hope you know I hope that'll I hope that'll continue um but I you know it's hard for me to evaluate yet whether or not living in new york is has or will help me you know or will help sell books or or what i, mean, I don't even know what it means really
0: right well and it what about help,
4: help and, my career
1: and what about uh the the fact that this is your second novel i mean the first book uh you deserve nothing did pretty well i mean for a debut yeah. it, was, it was well received it sold pretty yeah. well yeah. and so now you're you're probably got a, a two book deal with Knopf. is that correct yeah so you yeah. have a two book deal with Knopf. you have um You know, a book that sells at auction and it's now rolling out. Like, do you feel uh, a really acute sense that this book has got to outperform the first? Like, do you know what I'm saying? Because obviously, that's what publishers look to in terms of how you're tracking. Like, how much pressure are you putting on yourself?
4: (laughs) Yeah, I I, I try really hard um, not to think about the sales. Mostly, I'm concerned with. And I, and even this, I'm trying not to think too much about. Uh, mostly, I fail. But I, you know, my, my primary concern is the is the are the reviews. That's what that's what I think about right now. Um, and I think you know, living in New York makes makes this makes this more difficult, or makes avoiding those those considerations difficult. I mean, I just have nothing to do. I think anyway. I have nothing to do with how well the book will sell. That's a, that's you know that's someone else's job. I'll do what they tell me to do, and I'll you know I'll go where they send me. But you know in the end, I, I I've done I've done my job, and I try to remember that it's hard because you want to you know you want to do something, and it, this is one of the most frustrating parts about about writing. I think is that well not even about writing, but about publishing. You know the the you've done your job. The, you've done the you've made all the edits you can possibly make you've hung on to the book as long as possible. But, you know, I I received the the hard in the mail the other day and there was something sort of sad about it because I knew that <laughs> it it was just it was gone. It right. was just totally gone. It was out of my control, it was out of my hands and I you know, I, I exchange a lot of emails and phone calls with people who are working on this book, but, you know, it's 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 for them to, to do this work. And I you know, I I wish I was better at just letting go entirely. But I don't think, you know, I don't think about the sales
1: very often. What I about, worry about Yeah, go ahead. Okay, so like marketing, like, you know, like cuz I know a lot of authors, I don't know. I mean, this is like a very common conversation like how involved you yeah, get in sure. the marketing of your own work and like you say you'll 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 talk to me, you'll go where they send you, you'll do your readings, you'll you know, probably take any interview that gets offered to you or whatever, but uh, you know, at some point, it's out of your hands. Do you fe- do you truly feel, uh, or are you able to kind of uh, be at peace with the limitations of what you're capable of in terms of, of hustle? You know what I'm saying? Like- I, I am I am
4: so incapable of being at peace. Um, that I that I that I have not yet achieved. Um, I mean, you know, I I will. Uh, I've just I've just sort of I've gotten rid of my Facebook account. I'm 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 very tempted to to kill my 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 Twitter account as well. I just don't know that any of those things make any kind of real difference. And they take so much time to, to manage and, and, and they're addictive in ways that I think are antithetical to the, to the process of, of writing. And yet, you know, I participate, I'm doing those things because in the beginning, you know, when the first book came out, everybody said, well, you, this is what you do.
2: Right. You create
4: a Twitter account, you create, you create a Facebook page, you get as many friends as possible. You know, I have no idea. I think mostly I just annoy people.
1: I think Not that's really. what I do too.
4: Well, right. I mean, I, well, I, I, I can guarantee you that you annoy people. <laughs> right.
1: right. This this recent trend I'm on of uh, re- retweeting. I, I think it's almost like I'm purposely trying to just be as annoying as possible.
4: <laughs> um, I mean, you know, I don't know. This is this is this is such a this this conversation. You know, you hear it as you say over and over again. You know, how much can a how much can a writer influence the sales of you know her own book through facebook and twitter I don't know i'm just yeah. sort of i'm i'm sort of I, I just can't imagine that that I'm doing much good by you know announcing that I have a you know that there's a q and a in, in some newspaper or whatever
1: right but i'm sort of i'm sort of with you there i think there's I yeah mean, I guess it can be some help, but I don't know if the uh, amount of effort that you expend trying to build all that up, you know, is is worth it. you know what I'm saying? I think it's not yeah. like a really good effort to uh, reward ratio.
4: <laughs> right, and I think I think what it does do is it it, it it provides me the false sense that I'm doing something.
2: Right. You know,
4: I mean, I instead of just sitting there waiting for something to happen. I can go on to you know, and my author page and post something, and it makes me feel as if I'm you know, I have some agency. But I you know, I think it, it serves me more than it probably serves anyone else.
1: Yeah, and you know, like it's the old thing. It's probably better just to get get to work on the next thing.
4: Well, exactly, exactly. If I if I spent you know as much time writing these days, and, and I do worrying and you know. Fucking around on, on Twitter I would be uh, I'd, I'd be further into this
2: novel
1: Right, <laughs> right. <laughs> So uh, With the regard to the second book A Marker uh, To Measure Drift Like you have taken on uh, A pretty big challenge Like you've done something that uh, I think I, Not a, a, a lot of male writers do Like you're writing a female protagonist And you're also writing someone um, You're writing from the, the point of view Of someone who falls well outside Your primary cultural context So yep. Um, you know, and you can probably summarize it better than I can. But your protagonist is a, a Liberian refugee, correct? Yes. So yeah. How did you? I mean, is there a way for you to talk about how you got to that point?
4: Um, yeah, I, I. It's it's a little bit it's a little bit um, the story is, is is a long one, I guess. But briefly, um, you know, I've always had a, an interest in in immigrant stories in general. Um, and have wanted to write an immigrant story for for a long time and i I was spending a lot of time in in Europe um, both in paris where i where I was living when I really started thinking about this book and and I spent a lot of time in um, in immigrant neighborhoods in in the north of Paris, and you know would often talk to people and and you know ask about their lives and the way that they 'd arrived and in in Paris, and and you know, and that sort of continued. I traveled a lot I, at the time. My girlfriend was living in the north of Italy, and I spent a lot of time there. And you know, was just sort of fascinated by by those lives. And I've always found those lives to be to be brave. And and I'm I've always been impressed by people who can you know who abandon everything to to sort of wash up in in some foreign country. So, so that's was, that's kind of that's the kind of you know root of my interest, and then to get to you know to get to a Liberian immigrant, it's, it was you know half just just hazard in the fact that I, I stumbled upon uh, interesting history, and um, I saw a film that was incredibly powerful and and that had a had a real impact on me. What film? And it's called Liberian Uncivil Civil War and uh the cinematography was done by um the photojournalist Tim Hetherington. and it's oh, right. just it was um it was one of the you know one of the most moving films i'd seen in a long time and and so you know i I'd, I'd played with various characters various voices uh with various backgrounds both male and female and then you know in the in that strange way that happens when you're writing something you know something i i, I, I I had I got this voice, and I started writing this character, Jacqueline, and something clicked, and I just sort of fell. Well, not sort of. I mean, I fell in love with this with this woman, and I, I just couldn't I couldn't sort of get her out of my out of my mind.
2: Hmm. Well, and so I, that's
4: that's how the you know that's that's the sort of the, the, the short version of the, the genesis of the of the book.
1: Well, I. Uh... It sounds, you know, I haven't had a chance to read it yet, but it sounds fascinating, and I'm happy for you. You know, we've known each other for a while, and I'm I'm psyched that the TMB Book Club gets a chance to shine a little light on it. And I certainly wish you well. Um, You're you're heading you're heading out on tour, correct?
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: So when does that start?
2: Um,
4: The 29th is the first is the first event, and that's here at the community library in Ketchum. And then I'm headed your way. I'm going to L.A. on the 30th, and then. be traveling for quite a while after that
1: cool well listen i wish you i wish you the best with it hopefully i catch you uh in los angeles and thanks so much for, for taking the time to talk
4: well thanks for having me and for the and for the book club
1: okay you guys that is alexander maxick great talking with him keep an eye out for his new novel a marker to measure drift it's due out from knopf knopf in just a couple of weeks on july 30th a marker to measure drift And uh, it's the TNB Book Club's official July selection. So uh, now we move on to the main event. My guest today, Elliot Holt. Perhaps you've heard of her. Uh, Her debut novel, entitled You Were One of Them, is now available from Penguin. Uh, There's been some buzz about this. I know I say that, but, you know, that's my show. I have people on the program who have written books that are generating buzz, and uh, receiving critical acclaim and whatnot. You Were One of Them was uh, recently selected as a New York Times book review editor's choice. And I'm just really happy to have Elliot here on the show. I hope you guys like this conversation. I had fun with this one. Uh, So here she is, the the lovely and talented. And by lovely, I mean lovely person in all respects. I'm just trying to be nice here. You see how tedious this gets? Here she is, folks. This is Elliot Holt and her debut novel once again is called You Are One of Them.
3: I am in Washington DC. I am, yes. My, Our nation's um,
1: capital. And last time we <laughs> spoke last time we spoke, we tried this before and your uh the phone at your uh, father's, father's house was right. was not working. So now you're at No your, it's are not. You, So now I'm at my
3: sister's house because um, like so many um, 21st century people, I don't actually have a landline of my own. And since your excellent podcast requires a landline, um, I couldn't do the interview from my apartment. But now I'm at my sister's house, um, which is fitting, I guess, because I actually wrote quite a bit of the book in this space. Um, Why? On the, um, because when I was finishing up the book, I for a while, all my furniture was in storage and I had given up my apartment because I was really broke. And so I stayed in my sister's attic for a few months while I was finishing the book. So I'm back in her attic. And um, (laughs) so it seems like the perfect place to be doing this interview, actually.
1: Things have come full circle.
3: Yeah. (laughs) If I thought my life was going to change in any real way by publishing a book, this is just a reminder that you're still the same person.
1: Yeah. Um, Well, like, let me ask you, because, like, this is interesting... This is part of the profession. I don't even, you know, I almost feel my, sometimes I find myself even like wondering if I can call, at least for me, uh, it a profession, though it does require like a professional work ethic. But like the the, the fact remains for the overwhelming majority of people who do this, that you you expend an enormous amount of time and energy, more than most people I think realize. Um, And then the book finally comes out and what's happened for you? Like, do you do you feel any different? Do you have any more, do you have like <laughs> real like, serious hope that this can be a living for you or is this just something you needed to say and, Um, and you're content I feel, with
3: that? Well, I think, um, no, I don't think I will ever make a living just from writing fiction. I do think, however, now that I've actually published a book, I will be more eligible for teaching jobs that will pay the bills, um, you know, there are a lot of uh, creative writing, teaching jobs that are not, you know, that you can't even apply for unless you have a book. So I, I you know, I feel like I'm more hireable. Um,
1: do you want to go? Do you want to go the academic route? I mean, it sounds like it, but.
3: I do, actually. I mean, I, uh, I really like teaching and I've done some of it. Um, I taught as an adjunct for three semesters at Brooklyn College when I still lived in New York. And I taught undergraduates um, a couple of literature classes and one creative writing class. And I really, really liked it. But, um, you know, when you're an adjunct, it's practically volunteer work. So at the time, I couldn't have lived on advertising agencies.
1: Wait, you just cut out there for a second. Oh,
3: sorry. I was working for various advertising agencies. Um, which is how I made my living for a long time. And I still do a little bit of freelance work for advertising agencies, but um, I would actually rather teach. So
1: so what about advertising? Because, I mean, like this is the thing. When you're a writer and you're trying to find ways to pay the bills, you look around and it's like, okay, I could teach or right. I could, you know, it's like technical writing, you know, looking at the one, <laughs> looking at the classified you know,
3: how can I traffic in words?
1: Yes. How can I traffic in words? And one of the ways is to write ad copy, I guess. Right. I mean, you can find, I guess some creative outlet there, but did you, do you ever find, cause this is the fear that I have is that mm-hmm. you start to work in advertising and suddenly, you know, you're prostituting your creative talent to sell products that you don't feel good about selling. Is that like too precious of a, of a outlook on it? Do you ever feel that way?
3: Um, I think, you know, I did feel a little bit that way, but I, I think honestly, um, what I felt more, I mean, cause I, I did write copy for a long time. The main thing wasn't even that I felt like I was prostituting my talents, but just that I, um, was so exhausted, like it was harder and harder for me to write around a full-time job in advertising that, you know, aside, there were so many meetings and so much travel and I was in an office so many hours a week that, um, you know, it just became less and less realistic for me to just try to write on the weekends. And somehow I did that while I was in graduate school. I got an MFA while I was still working full-time at an ad agency, but I was younger then. I was <laughs> <laughs> 30 and somehow I had a lot more energy. And now I'm I don't know, I can't pull the late nights I used to be able to pull writing. You know, I can't write at night. I used to be able to write at night. Now I really I don't know. I just My brain is kind of mushy by evening, you know. Um, and I just, I managed to write some short stories while I was working full time, but I, I just was like, I'm never going to finish a novel working those kinds of hours, which is why I gave up my salary job and then was just doing freelance, which is, you know, nerve wracking because you don't know when the next assignment is going to come or.
1: Yeah, it's feast or famine.
3: Yeah, it is feast or famine. So, so I took that risk, and I, I mean, I'm glad I did in the sense that I really don't think I would have finished my novel otherwise, but. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of famine.
2: <laughs> yeah, no shit. Well,
3: so it's is scary, the- and I, you know, and again, like I, I wouldn't have been able to take the risk if I had had children or if I had a mortgage to pay. I was, you know, decided it was something I could risk doing because I'm, you know, I don't have a partner, I don't have a child, I don't, you know, I'm just responsible for me, so I'm only going to screw up my my own life.
1: I- <laughs> <laughs> See, I have a child, so I'm going. Oh shit.
3: Yeah. Well, no, and it's good that you have a child. I mean, you know, I. I didn't plan to not have a child. I just, you know, I don't. So now I feel like I can take some creative risks that I, um, might feel less comfortable taking if I were financially responsible for anyone.
1: Right. Well, so what drives you? You know, I mean, I know that like, obviously, Mm. you know, you take these risks and you obviously want to be a writer, but like, do you have a sense of what, what it is deeper, uh, you know, in your psyche that...
3: Man, this compelsing. is an intense <laughs> question. Yeah, I don't know
1: though, but it's like I think it's a worthy question because I ask it of myself. Like I wh- do. What is this? What is this thing that I can't like this itch that I can't stop scratching? Like I cannot stop writing, and I think that's what writers are—they're people who can't not do it for whatever
3: right. reason. Right? Oh, exactly. Because I think most of us have had moments when we kind of wished we didn't feel compelled to do it because God, life would be easier if we, you know, were compelled to do something that was, you know more <laughs> paid bills. <laughs> like, oh, I wish I felt compelled to practice law. Um, yeah, I don't know, you know, I, because I also have had the urge to write since I was so little that it's hard for me to really understand where it comes from. And I don't know, you know, I, I do think about this sometimes. I'm like, how much of it is just ego, you know, feeling like you actually have something to say that, <laughs> that people might want to read. I mean, it seems... Um, I had a teacher in graduate school who said that writers need to have a mixture of humility and hubris, and um, I think that's right. You know, you need to be humble enough to um, edit your own work ruthlessly and, you know, Know when what you're writing is no good, but at the same time, there must be a little bit of hubris to to even think that what you're doing is worth putting down on paper.
1: See, I think it's I I think it might even be a lot. Like this is a lot of hubris. Yeah, I've had like barroom like arguments with people before, where like you know it's it's like lead singers and rock bands uh, and uh, you know actors and pop stars and all that kind of stuff. They're always painted as like the preening egomaniacs. Uh but I think writers are right up there in their own way. You know, like we, we presume that like you want to spend like 12 hours or 20 hours of your life, just like with our words.
3: (laughs) Well, (laughs) it's funny though, because I think I spent a long time assuming that no one did want to read my stuff. I mean, I think it, it took me a long, I was always writing, but it took me so long to actually have the guts to show it to anyone. So, I mean, I think you're right. You do need to have some ego, but I, I also think that, um, Took me a while to to have enough ego,
1: maybe about my own work. I had, I think, I had like, I, I strangely, like I'm in a, I, I had more confidence when I was younger, and now I'm like less sure of like, I, I don't know. Tell me if you have, if you ever feel this way. Like, do you ever feel like, oh, it's already been said. Like, what's the, yes. what's the antidote to that? I and mean, I feel like there's so much noise. It's like I get overwhelmed by that. It's like, well, what, what can I add to this? Like, I just look. No,
3: online. I, I feel that way a lot, and I. It's fun. I used to work for One Story magazine and I love One Story but I felt that way the whole time I worked there. I was kind of I realized I was never gonna like I wasn't writing enough of my own stuff while I worked for them because I constantly had that feeling I'd be reading slush and reading submissions and think, God, there are just so many stories. What well, makes me think that <laughs> I need to write one, you know? Right, right. Um aren't there enough great books in the world? You know, and, and I read, you know, writers I love like Nabokov or Alice Monroe or something. And I'm like, really? I mean, there's so many amazing books out there. Does the world really need another one from me? No. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, I feel that way a lot. And I, and yet I keep writing because there's some, you know, weird story I feel like I have to tell, but I, but I, that's why I think, I don't know when I'm writing. I'm not, I'm not thinking about a potential audience at all. It's more that I'm trying to understand something or sort of writing my way. I, I don't know. just, I'm kind of, trying to understand something while i'm writing it, so it is um I don't know i don't um I'm not thinking at least you know when I'm working on something about who's going to spend any time reading it it's more That's, just
1: that sounds healthy and and you know guess, yeah. the other thing the other thought that occurs to me is that uh you know it, I think a lot of times when a person sits down to write uh, and and maybe particularly early on, but I think this can be pervasive like all all along the the, the road is that you can sometimes uh, sit down and fool yourself into thinking that you have to have all these answers. But I like the, the idea of writing down and trying or sitting down and trying to write your way out of confusion.
3: Yeah, that's uh, what I'm, I almost never have any answers when I start something. I mean, I don't, I, I usually just have, I sort of hear a line. And I just kind of follow that line and, and things sort of open up out of the language itself usually. And um, Or sometimes I have a very particular character in mind. But I don't, I never have any, I don't plot things out beforehand. I don't have a thesis, you know, or a, a thematic um, framework. You know, I'm really just kind of... Intuitive. Yeah, it's very intuitive for me. And so it's only in the revising process when i have you know a full draft that i'll kind of step back and say what is this really about and then maybe start pulling themes out that um then i start to see patterns you know then i'll then i'll play with them but i'm not um i don't i never sit down feeling like i have something to say you know <laughs> i just sit down sort of thinking huh why what what if what if this you know i have some little weird premise in mind or like what if this what if that and then i I'm, I'm just you know i think i'm just trying to figure things out as i go and that's but that's the fun for me too you know that's the um that's the part i like because i'll be writing in like oh i didn't know that in the next line that that character was going to say that you know not that you know i don't mean to make it sound like some mystical thing where like the characters lead me it's not that (laughs) it's um it's fairly intuitive you know and i think i'm a lot of times being um Led by the sound of the words as much as anything else,
1: you know what I mean sure well, and when, it's like one
3: it's thing like, sort of leads to the next
1: well and it's it's a uh, I can sit down and read a great book and and be just like kind of bowled over by the intelligence of the writer and um, yeah me I too. guess I guess what I'm driving at is that like what you with the end product after all of the hard work and all of the revision you know and, and everything that goes into making a book. Uh, work. After all that is done, you obviously have this, this shiny object or hopefully you have this shiny object, but, <laughs> yeah. um, it's just, I think it's just helpful to remember that it, most of the time it starts with like a uh, great confusion.
3: <laughs> oh yeah. And usually the confusion persists for several years and, you know, um, and yeah, you just spend so much time in the mire trying to figure out what, you know. But it's but it's also I was working. I'm working on a new short story right now, and I had a good writing day. I have the thousand new words. You know, it's always a good day when you have oh, yeah. a thousand new words. And um, and you know, this is the first sort of good writing day of new material I've had in a while because I've been busy talking about this other book. And I'm in a really good mood because <laughs> it's a reminder that for me, and I think this is true for a lot of writers, there's really nothing that beats the actual process. You know, like it doesn't. Um, I don't. I think ultimately, like nothing makes you, is ever going to make me happier than than actually sort of being in it, working on something. Like a good review doesn't feel as good, you know. I, mean, I have no idea what it's you know. I just it it feels really good, you know. Even and even on the days when I don't necessarily like what I write, it's like oh a thousand words. Like I, some kind of little something happened there, you know, something I didn't expect and. um that's the fun part. It's like, oh, my God.
1: It does It does feel so good to get your words and just be like, oh. It does. It I, feels
3: so good. Like, and,
1: there, and there's nothing worse than having it be like three or four in the afternoon and you have not done jack shit, like writing. No,
3: I know. I mean, that's the thing. We're all like in such a terrible mood if we don't get to write or if the writing doesn't really work out. But then we're all like in the best mood. I mean, really, there's, you know, a good writing day is just
2: That's the, thing. the
3: best the best thing but but again, the process is the part that I love, so even though it's awful <laughs> 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 even, even though in the three plus years I was working on the book that's out now i you know I'm trying not to i think it's p- kind of probably like, like um childbirth, like you know. People forget how awful it was actually giving birth. They're like, "Yeah, I want to have another kid," and then you know they think, oh, why? Why? I forgot how awful this is."
1: Well, it's, um, it's funny. Yeah, th- so here
3: I am, like, "Yeah, I'm going to write another book." <laughs>
1: right, but it's funny. <laughs> I
3: forget how much of that three and a half year process was you know me like bursting into tears, like, "I don't even know what this is about. It's never going to work," you know.
1: <laughs> yes, yeah, it's so strange because you know and I was like when you were talking about childbirth, I was thinking about you know parenthood and like how like I can be so exhausted from like chasing my daughter around. I'll be like, I just need a break. I just need a break. And then she'll go like take a nap and I'll be sitting there looking at my watch going like, when's she going to wake up? I miss her. You know. Right. right. Exactly. And, and it's exactly. like, it's the same thing with writing. It's like so crazy that we can kind of know this intellectually and yet, you know, not be able to maybe appreciate how good it is to be working on something just to have the opportunity to work,
3: you know? Yeah. And to just, I mean, I, I don't know. I'm, this is probably true for you too, but I just feel most myself when I'm writing something like I, I just, um, I don't know. It's like the time when I just feel like, Oh yeah, this is, this is me. Like I'm making sentence up. It, sentences up and I'm, you know, imagining a scene that's totally in my head and I'm, um, and there's just kind of its own rhythm to that process. But, you know, it's sort of like, that's, that's me. That's when I feel most, most like myself. So it's, it's just kind of a delicious feeling, so. Do you... Yes, do you, I'm on the writer's high
1: now. Yeah, well, that's good. I'm glad I caught you on a good day and like... You're
3: like, thanks, I don't want to hear about it anymore. Right,
1: I didn't get anything done. <laughs> um, so let me, you, let me ask you about themes, because I yeah. think, you know the, I think there's a lot of truth to the notion that writers will essentially write different versions of the same book... Throughout a career. And, and that's not, oh, yeah. I don't even mean that in a, in a derogatory way at all. No, I
3: know. I don't think, I mean, uh, Ishiguro has said that about his own books. He's yeah. He's writing I, the same book again. You read, I
1: mean, if you read an author straight through, you will be able to detect, you know, detect the through line. So like, I know right. you're, you're fairly early in your career, but like, do you, can you look at your work, um, both, uh, you know, what you've published and maybe what you haven't published or what you're currently working on? And can you point to certain themes that you know are your you know your themes like these are the things that for whatever reason you like Yeah, to my
3: preoccupations. Yeah. yeah, definitely. I mean, uh loss for sure. Um and secrets, I think um like not again like I it's not something I was sort of aware of until someone pointed out to me that um two of my published short stories and my novel all have a lot of characters who keep secrets from each other and i was like oh yeah i guess (laughs) i guess that's true i must be grappling with uh you know notions of intimacy and how well you can ever really know another person um what are
1: you keeping from me elliot what are you you hiding
3: i'm actually not in washington dc i'm actually (laughs) in shere airport with edward snowden right now
1: you're in the transit zone
3: I'm in the transit zone and, uh, Eddie and I are drinking a beer.
1: (laughs) (laughs) What is, by the way, what is the transit zone? What the hell does that mean? It
3: means that officially speaking, it is, you haven't crossed into, um, you know, you've landed at the airport, but you haven't crossed into the country by, you know, by way of, uh, what's it called? Um, customs. Yes, custom like you're so in the transit zone of Sheremetyevo, like he isn't officially on Russian soil apparently because he hasn't you know gone through immigration and customs.
1: So is he just like so. sleeping on the floor? I mean, not to get too far <laughs> off into, into. I mean, of course,
3: no one's actually seen him, but there's um there is a hotel in the transit zone of that airport, so it's it's entirely possible that he's just holed up in a hotel room.
1: Oh,
2: okay,
3: and there are a few restaurants. I mean, it's you know it's the transit zones exist because if someone has a connecting flight you know, through Paris or whatever, and they, um, they aren't staying in Paris. Then they don't have to go through French immigration. They can just you know be in the transit zone for two hours till they fly on to wherever else they're going. But, you know, normally you don't spend two weeks, (laughs) two weeks in the transit zone. Um, but anyway, that's what the transit zone is.
1: Okay. Well, let me try to, uh, let's try to segue into Russia because you have, you, you know, your book involves Russia. You, you have a, uh. Cold War theme, and then you also yeah. spent some time living there. So, yeah, I did. Uh, how did that happen? Like, where? First of all, you lived in Moscow. Is that correct?
3: Uh huh. I lived in Moscow for two years. Um, I the first time I visited Moscow was in 1993. Um, it was the year after I'd finished high school, and my mother, who is no longer alive, worked for the World Bank. And um, after what the hell
1: is the World Bank? I don't mean to interrupt. You. <laughs> what? <laughs> It's one of those things where you're like, oh, yeah, the World Bank. Like, I really don't know what the World Bank is. Uh,
3: well, okay. You know what the IMF is, right? Sort of? I know, I know International Monetary Fund? I
1: know th- I know what it stands for, yeah.
3: Okay. So the, the IMF and the World Bank are similar in the sense that they're these global institutions that have member countries, um, and the difference is – and, I mean, I'm sure some expert can call in and correct me, but the difference is that what the World Bank does is actually um, – fund projects, I think, almost entirely. Like they basically they give it it functions like a bank, but it lends money to countries um for various projects and
1: Does it does it lend money to writers by any chance?
3: Yeah, <laughs> I know I wish. I wish. But yeah, the it's the IMF and the World Bank are both both based in Washington and the um World Bank usually has an American president. Um and the IMF usually has a European president and um but they they lend money to member countries, and so it tends to be you know loans for second and third world countries for you know infrastructure projects and that kind of thing okay. um,
1: so, and so and your, your mother what did your mother do for the world bank?
3: She was a financial analyst who basically you know analyzed these loans and decided how much money was going to various countries and When I was growing up her um, her region was East Africa, so she was in charge of loans for um, Somalia and Sudan and Ethiopia and Kenya and Djibouti and some other places. Um, And then when Russia, when the Soviet Union fell apart, Russia joined the World Bank in, I think it was like 91 or 92. And then she switched over to Russia and the former Soviet States. So then she was traveling all the time to Russia and Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan and Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. So she took me with her on a business trip um, for a few days in 1993, and I thought Moscow was really grim. <laughs> I mean, I was fascinated just because, you know, because after years of um, hearing about Moscow as the capital, capital of the other superpower during the Cold War, I was, you know, really interested in. Seeing it, but I was also like, okay, I've seen it. I don't need to. I don't need to go back, you know. Um, and then my mother actually moved there in 1996 um, to take a four-year assignment based at the World Bank's office in Moscow. And so she um, she rented out the house that my sisters and I grew up in in Washington D.C. And she moved to Moscow. And um, my sisters and I, two of us were in college. The youngest was in boarding school and so we all went to moscow for christmas
1: vacation (laughs) which is a a delightful place too
3: yeah and then but then we did we finally enough actually you know sort of all turned into Russophiles. um so yeah but i remember that first christmas vacation none of us spoke russian and it was totally freezing and we were there for two weeks and we were sort of joking that we were kind of like Chekhov's three sisters, except in tr- except instead of trying to get to Moscow, we were kind of like, what the hell are we doing here? <laughs> <laughs> How do we get out? But anyway, but we ended up kind of all falling for Russia in various ways. And now my youngest sister is about to defend her dissertation in Russian literature at Columbia. And, um, you know, so she's going to be a professor of Russian literature. Wow. And, um, yeah, so it, it obviously seeped into seeped into our lives. But um, anyway, so that's that's how we all ended up there. But um, uh, but yeah, then I just ended up, I moved to Moscow after I graduated from college, and I just thought I would stay for a few months, because I thought it would be really cool to learn Russian, and I don't know, but then it was just such an interesting time to be there, because it was changing so fast, and this you know really rapid transition to a capitalist society was... It was just really fascinating,
1: so I ended up staying for two years. And, um, what? Yeah. What is it? I mean, because like I've always, it always seems like uh, I, I hear or I read about how interesting it is to be in a country uh, right after the fall of communism. It's also it's it's usually cheaper. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Well, yes, there's that. It's like, it's like writer. It's it's writer friendly, but it's also interesting to see a place that's kind of like newly liberated or is undergoing some kind of revolution. Like, mm-hmm. like what was the energy like? I mean, was there are there things that you can point to concretely where you were like, wow, this place was really coming uh, apart, but like you know, finding a new identity or whatever. Like, what was it like uh, specifically?
3: Well, yeah, it was. I mean, um, God, what was it like? It was. I mean, for one thing, Moscow is a little bit like New York in the sense that it's a city that never sleeps. I mean, there are just things that are open all night long, and there's, you know, a, a real urban energy to the place, and there are all these, um, you know, crazy bars and nightclubs and things like that. But they, um, but the privatization was happening so fast, and this was, you know, mid. To late 90s, it was like the oligarchs controlled everything, and there wasn't really a middle class yet. So there was, you know, there were these really fancy, you know, very quickly super high-end designers came into Russia. So you know there was like a Versace store and some, you know, some really really high-end design stores. But then there was no kind of middle-class shopping equivalent. I mean, there wasn't something at the sort of Gap price point. You know what I mean? It was sort of like either Couture or um, kind of street market places where you could buy really, really, really cheap knockoff stuff. Um, and it was, you know, on the one hand, really hard to find a decent cup of coffee. But then on the other hand, um, there were these just sort of crazy nightclubs where, you know, people were wearing super designer clothes. And, um,
1: Is that where you were hanging out?
3: Yeah, totally. No. <laughs> no, but I did, I mean, I did, you know, go out dancing sometimes, and I would, I mean, I had a lot of, um, I had a few uh, good Russian friends that I worked with, but I also had a lot of expat friends because all the expats kind of knew each other. I mean, it was a really um, kind of small expat community. That was. There were certain places that expats always went, like there were a couple of... Um, Movie theaters that showed films in English, and so you almost guarantee if you went there that you just see a bunch of Americans um, and Brits and Swedes. And, um, I weirdly had a lot of Swedish friends when I lived there.
1: Oh, really? Okay. And, and what about? Was yeah. there? Wasn't like speaking of expats? Like, wasn't there like an English language newspaper?
3: Yeah, the Exile.
1: That's what it was called, right? The Exile. Uh-huh. Did you know those yeah. guys?
3: I didn't. I think I met one of them once, but yeah. But I mean, I used to read the Exile. It was you know, controversial in a lot of ways, but what one of the things that was interesting about the Exile is that, um, you know, it had a kind of frat guy uh, party vibe, but at the same time, it had the best, like, restaurant reviews. <laughs> 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 it was very reliable. <laughs> it's very reliable for listings, you know?
2: Yeah.
3: Um, and there was this really infamous place called the Hungry Duck, which was ultimately closed down, but apparently has reopened. And it was this bar that some expats started um, that was hugely successful, it was like in the center of the city. And twice a week they had ladies' nights. And on ladies' nights they would let women in, only women in until 9 p.m., and the women could drink for free. So the women were just completely wasted. And then they would open the doors to men at 9 p.m. and charge them an entrance fee. So you can just imagine the mayhem oh that this caused. And um, I went a couple of times just to kind of – Observe.
1: You don't have to hedge. You don't have to. Hedge.
3: <laughs> well, no, it was terrifying. It was really terrifying. Yeah. Um, there was when I was there. They, in addition to giving, plying all the women with free alcohol, they they brought out a couple of male strippers to kind of get the women excited <laughs> early in the evening. So there were these two guys up on the bar, doing a kind of Chippendale routine with silver thongs on, and um, and everyone was just getting drunker and drunker, in the um, the the stripper men pulled some women up onto the bar and completely undressed them. And so the women were actually completely naked and the male strippers still had their thongs on. And then they let the men in. And it was just like, you know, date rapes waiting to happen, I think. But I didn't stay long enough to see anything really terrible. But there was, you know, there was a lot of, there's just a lot of crazy, crazy, um, crazy. behavior. But there was a sense then that, You know, everything was, it was like you could bribe your way out of everything, traffic tickets and, you know, everything was, um, so corrupt and there wasn't really a sense of, um, of order, you know? So it was, I never felt unsafe because almost all the crime that I heard of was targeted mafia stuff. But at the same time, there was just this sense that like anything might happen anytime.
1: Right and then, so, and were you writing during this time i mean you were and where, I was, where were you working I
3: went, again where were I you? worked at an ad agency
1: okay, so you're working as an ad an ad agency and then you you yeah. but you were harboring uh writerly ambitions then
3: yeah i i mean i've I've harbored writerly ambitions pretty much my whole life so yeah i was I was writing a little bit of fiction i mean again, not showing anything to anyone but um and I wasn't writing about russia i mean it never really occurred to me that I was going to write fiction set in Moscow, but i just was always kind of scribbling something, and I was writing a lot of letters to my friends in the States, so um, that was actually helpful, because some of the letters I wrote to them, um, I got copies back, and so I, you know, the things I was writing down then were sort of useful, bringing back my memories of the 90s Moscow. Oh, yeah, right. Because I, I didn't keep a journal or anything, but I, I did write letters, and it was the early days of email, so I... Also, was writing people some emails, and um, one of my college friends was in Seattle, um, and she and I used to fax each other. <laughs> she, <laughs> she worked in an advertising agency in Seattle, and I was at this advertising <laughs> agency in Moscow, and email was kind of unreliable sometimes. You know, it would, you'd get those weird delay messages where It was like, this message, you, you know, like, it's still...
1: Well, you're, you're, really, you're really dating yourself here. You're like back in the day when email didn't work, and
3: <laughs> but yeah, we used to send these faxes to each other. So I also had all those faxes that I had sent to her, um, and that was very funny. Uh,
1: and that really, and that really did help the writing of the book. Like...
3: Yeah, it really did because I, you know, there were just things I forgot, um, just things I forgot about Moscow, and you know.
1: Well, clearly, because you, you, know, you, this... you were always out clubbing. I mean, how are you supposed to remember? <laughs>
3: just changed so much. And I haven't actually been to Moscow since 2001. I didn't, I didn't want to go back until I was done with the book because I didn't want contemporary Moscow to get in the way of my very clear memories of Moscow then. But I also, but even just reading about Moscow and my sister has been there a lot and I've, you know, seen her pictures and talked to her on Skype when she's there. And so I just inevitably contemporary Moscow has sort of gotten in the way of of my memories, but then looking back at those letters and taxes, I thought, "Oh my gosh, that's right!" You know, you know, there was no, there was no Starbucks then in Moscow. You know, there was whatever.
1: Right. right so, right. so did you did you learn how to speak Russian? I did, yeah. You, you're I'm
3: not fluent, okay. but no, I'm not fluent. Functional. I, I'm, <laughs> I'm functional. I'm functional. I'm, I'm, um, or I was, I would say, you know, advanced or something. Um, now I'm so rusty that. I wouldn't say I'm not. I don't know. I've forgotten a lot, but I still, um, I still understand a lot. And every once in a while, like just a few weeks ago, I was in New York, and my taxi driver was Russian, and so I was speaking to the Russian. He got. He told me that I sounded exactly like his uh, son, who was born in New York. Um, and grew up in Brighton Beach, you know, but his parents came from Moscow. He said, I sounded like a second generation. <laughs> you know, he's like, oh, you, I, you're, are your parents Russian? I said, no, no. Um, uh, but yeah, he said I sounded like a Russian who grew, who'd grown up in the States. And I was like, no. Nope.
1: Well, that's a compliment, I think, right?
3: Yeah, I think so. I think if I had spoken to him longer, he would have <laughs> realized I wasn't – I like didn't remember as much as I thought. But I but yeah, at first he was like, Really? You're not
1: your family's not Russian? I said, No,
3: no. <laughs> well and so, no Slavic blood.
1: <laughs> what about uh so what about the writing uh like the, the, the serious attempts at fiction? Like did those begin in Russia or did they begin when you got back? Like when when did you really start to like buckle down and mm. you know develop a ritual or whatever it is that people do to, mm. to get books done.
3: Yeah, definitely not until almost 10 years later when I went to graduate school. I mean, I, I was in some fiction workshops in high school and stuff, you know, and, and then in college, I weirdly wasn't really writing any fiction, but I, I did try to write some plays, which were terrible. Um, and then
1: what was the name of a play that you wrote?
3: (laughs) Oh God, I can't remember. Um, and I don't, I also don't know if I ever wrote a full length. I know I wrote a couple of one acts, but I don't I don't remember what they were called. They were bad. They were really bad, really bad. But I but I read so many plays that I think probably that helped me as a fiction writer. I mean, just in terms of understanding subtext and thinking about structure and stuff. Um, but, no, so I, I lived in Moscow for two years, and then I lived in London for two years, and I was starting to write more fiction in London. What happened in London? Not, I was working for an ad agency there, too. Oh,
2: so. wow, okay.
3: Yeah, they, the agency I worked for in Moscow basically offered me a, a job in London and transferred me, and I said, okay. Oh, that's um, cool. Because I love London. And then I lived in Amsterdam for a year, and I wrote a lot in Amsterdam. Nothing I showed to anyone, but I was writing quite a lot. And then... Um,
1: Wait, you lived? did you work for an ad agency in, in Amsterdam?
3: No, but I was dating a guy who was working for an ad agency in Amsterdam.
1: <laughs> so, it's all about ad agencies <laughs> somehow.
3: Yeah, well, it was for a while. But, yeah, so I, I was... Um, living with with a dude then okay and uh and and i love amsterdam i mean that's it's a great city such a, such a great city and it was such a great city to write in like if i you know if anyone's listening and wants to give me a fellowship <laughs> right. to Amsterdam.
1: me too please so it's a
3: really good place to work um
1: why is that why do you why do you think amsterdam just because it's so beautiful and the canals or is it like
3: yeah. Like the weather is really suitable. It's it's um you know there's the, the Dutch prize coziness. The word is gezellig. And it's like if, if something's cozy, it's the greatest, you know. And I love that. And the weather it's often kind of rainy, and um and it's the kind of weather that's so conducive to sitting inside with a book, reading or writing, and drinking coffee and eating, you know, um apple tart in log room, and like it's just you know cozy. And it's also I think. Great because it's a you know world class city with all the great music and art and whatever that comes with a world class capital. But it but it still feels like kind of a small town. So it's that nice combination of not being totally overwhelming and distracting, and yet being really inspiring because you can just hop on your bike and
1: well, yeah, like everyone's like be- go
3: to a great I've, I've, art I've, museum. I've,
1: I've only been there in the summers, but it's like it's, all, it's always like everyone's all beautiful on their bikes and you know
3: yeah it's a yeah, yeah yeah
1: the Dutch are beautiful people.
3: They are, (laughs) yeah, and it's, but the winters are, you know, chilly and. You don't really want to be outside much, you just sit inside and anyway i I love it there, I really love it there, but um,
1: did you do any drugs like were you into that culture when you were no,
3: there? no. I'm such a nerd no i don't you know I'm not I really don't like to be out of control
1: <laughs> so, <laughs> so you're, loving, <laughs> kind of you're control you're, you're loving this podcast, just a free form conversation I
3: know it's kind of scary, but um yeah, no i I was not into the drug culture
1: at, at all. all, not even a little bit,
3: not even a little bit. Okay. I yeah. love the coffee culture, though. I mean, I love coffee, and I
1: love... <laughs> I got really <laughs> jacked up on some caffeine in Amsterdam.
3: <laughs> well, you know, and I love bikes, you know. Yeah. I was really into my bike. Um, I got really good at, you know, doing my shopping on a bike and carrying it all home in my basket, and, um, and I got used to the ritual of riding my bike. I would ride my bike to the train. This is what you do. You ride your bike to the train station, you lock it up, and you take the train to the airport, you know, so I would bike with my, like when I was flying, you know, back to the States to visit my family or something, I would bike to the train station with my backpack or my duffel bag or whatever on the back and then, you know, go to the airport that way. And it, it's just also civilized, like Ugh. no taxis, no cars, you know, right. I biked everywhere.
1: That sounds great. We'd bike to the
3: beach in the summer. It was great. Oh,
1: that sounds so good. I, and I
3: trained, I ran the Amsterdam marathon the year I lived there and, um, and so all my training runs were so funny because the country's so small. So I'd be like, Oh, I have to do a you know twelve mile run this week, and I'd map it out, and I'd find that I'd run to like another town, and then I would take. I feel like I was so far away, and then I'd get on the kind of commuter rail to come back to Amsterdam. It was like a five minute <laughs> 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 five minute train ride. I was like, Oh, <laughs> I thought I was so far away, but everything was so close together.
1: So and, and oh. you and you were working on fiction while you were there, like that was. Yeah, I was. Yeah. That, was that was like the first like deep dive into writing. War.
3: Yeah, I would say that was the first kind of deep dive, and then I um, moved back to the states, and I was surprised, surprised working at another ad agency in New York, and I um, I realized then, I guess I was twenty nine, that I wanted to get an MFA just to sort of force myself to get more serious about writing fiction. And um, but I didn't want to give up my day job because I didn't want to put all my eggs in one basket. So
1: so practical.
3: I know, I'm, I'm telling you, I'm a control freak. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not actually very good at taking risks, which is why it's funny that I don't know that I ended up taking any at all. But um, yeah, so I applied to the MFA program at Brooklyn College because the classes meet in the evenings, and at the time Michael Cunningham was running the program, and. I had heard great things about it, and it's really affordable if you're a New York City resident because it's a CUNY school. So, um, and luckily I got in because um, I didn't find <laughs> so I didn't really spread myself, you know. I didn't have any other options, so luckily I got in. Um, and yeah, that was good because I, I, uh, I think that really kicked me into high gear. I think having, um, you know, being around other smart, talented, dedicated writers and having to turn stuff in regularly and, you know, it gave me a lot of, um, it gave me a lot more confidence in my own work, but it also just, you know, it was inspiring to be around all those people and to be talking about good old craft questions and, you know, just be around a bunch of people who really cared about
1: books. Did, great. W- were you classmates with anybody who's gone on to, like, have, like, wild publishing success?
3: Um, my, my actual class, um, is, I think you're going to, like, a lot of them have just started selling their books, you know, um, I've, I have a friend, Marie Helene Bertino, who's a totally awesome writer who, um, won the Iowa Review Short Fiction Award last year when Jim Shepard was the judge. And so her collection, Safest Houses, came out last year, and she just sold her first novel to Crown. Oh wow! So it's going to come out in 2014, um, and yeah. So people, so you know, I think there will be more books coming out of the the group of people that I was in school with. But um,
1: it's still early.
3: It's still early,
1: yeah. So how do you, so. mean, okay, you say you're a control freak, which I think a lot of writers are, you know? I yeah. Think it's, I think that's one of the attractions of the of the work is that, like, you have kind of total control. Like, no one's really in your ear telling you right. what to do. But, um, so with that in mind, like, what is your regimen? Like, how, how regimented are you? Do you get up every morning at, like, five in the morning and work, or how does it go? No, through?
3: I'm not. I wish I were that regimented. Um... I do work best in the morning, um, but not 5 a.m. Like, I find, you know, on an ideal, an ideal day, I have my coffee and I, you know, read the paper and listen to NPR a little and then I'm at my desk working by, you know, 9.30 or 10. Um, And then, um, work pretty solidly until 2 or so. And then, um, and then, I'm not great at, producing new material like later in the afternoon or the evening but i'll often revise and edit um but i don't i'm not as consistent as i would like to be i mean i think when i'm really in the throes of something like once i'm kind of in the zone on something then i'm impossible to distract and i'll like work on it every day and sometimes 10 or 12 hours a day you know i'm just really like a terrier i can't let go of it but if i'm um you know, not, I haven't really, if something hasn't really started to click for me, then I'm much less disciplined. Or if I'm not actively working on something new, then I, you know, there's some days when I don't actually write at all, or I just, or if I'm doing some kind of freelance job, or some other, you know, thing that isn't fiction, then I'll often go a couple weeks without writing anything. Um, But I I always have a notebook with me, and I scribble little things all the time. So it's always, there's a lot of, percolating going on in my head, you know? Sure. Um, and I'm a very, I read like a crazy person. So I'm always reading stuff and I think,
1: what do you mean by stuff books or you mean online books, everything? Books, books, books. books Yeah. Okay. No,
3: I read, I read, um, I read several books a week. And so to me that even though it's, you know, a different, it's not actually writing, it still feels like feeding the same.
1: Well, sure. You read several, how many books a week do you read?
3: I would say two to three. Jesus, I don't know. Over over the Fourth of July weekend, i read five
1: books. Holy shit!
3: <laughs> between Wednesday and Sunday, but I don't have children, and I right. didn't, you know, see anyone. I just
1: I read I was, the cat. I read the Cat in the Hat.
3: Well, exactly. You had your kid and your nieces, and you were busy. I, you know, have a lot of time on my hands. Because wow. I have a lot of time by myself.
1: God bless. It sounds wonderful. And so and what what have you been reading lately? Tell me what I'm missing.
3: <laughs> well, I read... Okay, so in the last, I would say, week, I read *Submergence* by... Um, is it Ledgard, I think is how you pronounce it? Which is a totally amazing novel that Coffeehouse Press just published. It was published in the UK last year, but they just brought it out in the States, and it's really beautiful, and I loved it. And I read... Um, Uh, God, now I have to look at my little list, because I write, this is the other nerdy thing I do. I write down, every time I finish a book, I write it down so that by the end of the year at the back of my notebook, I have a list of every book I read that year. Mm -hmm. Um, oh yeah, I read Hangs a Man by Shirley Jackson, um, which I'd never read before, or maybe you pronounce it Hangs a, oh no, I guess it's Hangs a Man. Um, I love Shirley Jackson, but I had never read that novel, but there's like a new, um, edition of it, a new Penguin Classic edition that, um, Francine Prose wrote the introduction for and I just happened to pick it up at an airport and I loved it. It's really unsettling and great, like all of Shirley Jackson's work. And I read, um, what else did I read last week? I'm looking at my little list. <laughs> oh. I read I'm almost done but I finally started reading The Emperor of All Maladies, you know, the biography of cancer. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> Really cheerful nonfiction.
1: I'm, I'm picturing I'm picturing you like sitting in the attic reading it <laughs> while like the Fourth of July fireworks. That's
3: exactly exactly. I'm in the attic reading about cancer.
1: <laughs>
3: <laughs> Welcome to my world.
1: <laughs> uh, but no, that book that book it's, won awards. I mean, it's supposed to be like a spectacular.
3: Yeah, it's um it's spectacular. I mean, the thing is, I'd been wanting to read it for a long time. I you know bought it and it just sort of sat on my shelf. But what I didn't expect is it's such a page turner. I mean, it's, it really moves, you know, it's incredibly informative and eloquent and interesting, but it just, it's really well paced. So anyway, um, it's great.
1: (laughs) So, so, okay. And then just to expand and I don't want to put you on the spot with a question like this because it drives me crazy when people do it to me, but, um, Uh I am interested when it comes to people who write in knowing if there are, is a book or a couple of books that sort of serve as north stars for you, or just books that like just absolutely rocked you, and that, and even if they don't at this point in your life have the same effect, but like at some point along the way, like really stuck to you. Like, are there books that you can point to yeah. that like you keep on your desk as like almost like desk references?
3: Not there are none that I keep on my desk as desk references, but I. But yes, in terms of books that, um, you know, really rock me or really probably influenced the way I write just because they made me sort of say, oh, you can do that in fiction. Um, I, Graham Greene, um, probably the end of the affair, particularly. Um, I really love that novel. And I love, I love the way it's a first person narrator looking back, trying to make sense of this relationship that ended. And so it's, as much about his memory of events as it is about the actual affair that ended. Um,
1: that was a pretty good movie too. I don't know. Did you ever see the movie version? I
3: didn't actually. I should. You mean the one with, um, with Ray Fines?
1: Yeah, Ray Fines and uh, Julianne Moore. Pretty good.
3: Well, delicious cast. I really should see it. But anyway, I love I love that novel, and I um, and I love his. I mean, I love The Heart of the Matter, and I love Quiet American, and I I really love Graham Greene, and I I think he. Um, has probably been pretty instructive to me in a lot of ways because his writing is it's so taut and um, there's something kind of cinematic about it. But it's very there's nothing wasted. You know, these are not flabby novels in any way. Um, so yeah, I love Graham Greene and then Alice Monroe, I reread. There's certain Alice Monroe stories that I <clears throat> reread again and again, and I think um, she's kind of a north star. Because of what she does with time, she moves away around in time a lot and she makes it look really easy. But it, um, I, when I was in graduate school, I would just re-read, this, reread some of those stories and just go, oh, my God, how'd she do that? You know, she just made it look so easy.
1: Well, that, um, you know, that's interesting that you say that because I've actually had that... Um thought before and that conversation before with like writer friends or when I was teaching, but like one of the hardest things to do in fiction that doesn't get spoken about maybe as much as it should is uh, to make a seamless time shift.
3: Yeah. It's, It's really, it's really hard to do. And I think, you know, um, yeah, I think she is just amazing at it. So, and I think it's what I love too about it is that, again, I think one of the things I love is when books are very much about memory as much as anything else. So, you know, I love The The Great Gatsby for that reason, because I think it's, you know, it's really um, this kind of elegy, Nick Carraway's elegy to this larger-than-life character, but it's, everything's filtered through the narrator's memory, and um, uh, yeah, so I love books like that, because because then the fiction has to capture that sense of consciousness, which is, you know, somewhat fallible, and uh, not totally reliable, and so yeah, I think I'm I'm really drawn to books that manage to do that. Um,
1: well, and then and there are
3: other examples. I mean, I love Divergent Suicides for the same reason. That's a great book. A, it's a great book. I mean, yeah. it's like totally perfect book. You yeah. know, it's like can't believe it's a first book. Yes. Um, because it's also so funny.
1: It's. It's um, just, it just felt vibrant f-
3: simultaneously will- wistful and hilarious
1: yeah and just like kind of yeah just like not a single thing out of place that's how i felt when
3: no I perfect it. it's perfect and it's um and it's so confident you know
1: yeah well and he so- takes like he takes like a really long time that's another thing i like about uh and i always i'm always curious as to how it's eugenides is that how you mm-hmm. pronounce it? that's how every, that's how most people yeah. i know say it but like he he's got like a 9 or 10 year gestation period for his books and um, and they're all great. They're all great, but they're like they're just all
3: three of them are great.
1: Must be very exacting. That's how I'm picturing it. Yeah. The, you
3: know. No, I think he revises like crazy. So, um, yeah. No, he's. I think all three of his novels are
1: amazing. So, so. let me shift gears on you. Um, mm-hmm. I, I want to ask about adversity because every writer oh. faces it, like the rejection, the mm-hmm. uncertainty, the trying to get an agent, the failing to get an agent, the getting dropped by an agent, the get you know all right. that stuff, like. Did you go through a lot of that? Did you ever find yourself, like, you know, bedridden with depression? <laughs> like, um,
3: anything like I've, that? Yeah, I, well, I've definitely been bedridden with depression. But I think, in my case, most of the adversity has come from self-doubt, not so much from being rejected by other, other people. Um, I have, like, definitely had moments of serious paralysis because of self-doubt and feeling like, you know, this isn't good enough. Um, I'm a fraud, you know, I'm not a good enough writer. You know, I just, I'm, I'm const. it's a big problem for me. Like I'm sort of constantly up against that and, and having to kind of, you know, it's, it's, it's good because I have, I mean, what is good is that I have two sisters who are really great at, um, believing in me when I don't believe in myself, but I definitely have problems. But, but in terms of, um, the world outside, I guess I've been lucky. Like I didn't, um, you know, I haven't been dropped by an agent and I haven't, I mean, like almost everyone else I know, I've been rejected by the New Yorker, you know, and I've been, um, rejected by bread loaf and I, you know, it's not like I haven't been rejected by things, but I, but I don't think I've been, um, those rejections haven't tortured me as much as just my own sense of insecurity about my work.
1: Where does that come from? Do you know? I mean, like, do you have, like, have you actually, like, tried to, like, pick it apart and be like, why am I doubting myself so much?
3: I don't know, because the thing is, I doubt myself about everything, so it's not just about my writing. I mean, I'm, I, I'm just fundamentally insecure about a lot of things. <laughs> so, um, you know, I tend to fix it on the things that are wrong with me instead of, good things so um,
1: i think i do that too how do we fix this i don't
3: know but again i think maybe if we weren't like that would we be writers i don't know i mean i just i don't know it doesn't but seem, it doesn't I'm, seem to be
1: the domain of like totally well-adjusted optimists
3: you know? no no definitely not no so i'm i mean i'm kind of constantly beating myself up, up about something and feeling like oh it's not you know really aware of it's flaws and I'm very, you know, I'm a perfectionist and
1: that's... I was just going to say that. I mean, it's, it's actually got to feed in some ways it's got to have a positive effect on your work because you sit there and you know, doing that revision work and really...
3: I see. guess but but I also am still like a crazy person who's like, God, I wish I could change parts of my book. <laughs> it's like, Elliot, let it go.
1: Yeah, it's it out. Is
3: out there and now you just need to focus on the <laughs> next was, thing and was, remember that was the first book and just you
1: know... It's been well received. I mean, it's like, Right,
3: on. and just like but you know, just there is no such thing as a perfect book, actually. So I just have to put my head down and do the next thing. Um,
1: but so, how did it sell? Did you have a long, protracted sales process, or did it go pretty quickly once you took it, it out? It
3: went pretty quickly, which is lucky because I am such an anxious person that if that I didn't really sleep while it was on submission, and so if it had taken a long time, I wouldn't, have, I wouldn't have slept for a long time, you know. Um. But it, it it happened it happened very quickly, which was really
1: nice. Like a week? Um, like what happened? Like a, yeah,
3: like a week,
1: I would say. Okay. Was there an auction?
3: There was an
1: auction. Holy shit! What were you doing during the auction? Because like this is like this is a part of the process that I think is maybe the most miserable because it's completely out of your hands. You don't know. Right. You don't really know what's happening. You're getting no. You don't. Kind of like some cryptic emails every once in a while. But what I've learned, is, what I've learned is that when if the news is really good, your agent calls you. But if it's not good, they'll email you. <laughs> Typically. That,
3: well, you know, I, I mean, I should first say that oh, there was an auction. You know, there, there are different kinds of auctions. There are auctions where you have like fifteen publishers, you know, bidding, and then there are auctions where you have, you know, three or four. So this wasn't like some mega but it was just
1: but still it was just, you, you had multiple suitors come on that's good I,
3: but no I just I, I didn't I really my feeling was I I want to know as little as possible um so I knew who my agent had sent the book to but I also didn't even really weigh in on that I was just like y- you send it to who you think is you know going to be interested um and then and then he you know Set a certain day for like to sort of close the bidding or whatever it was, and and then he just sort of called me and said, "Okay, well this is, this is who is interested and this is what they're you know." It was it was very um uh pretty straightforward from my end because I just basically just had to say to him a couple of times like that sounds good, you know. <laughs> like I don't a dream. I so I don't know what it was like for him, but he didn't tell me a lot, you know what I mean? So. He just told me what I needed to know.
1: And um, so what, like, okay, so finally you said this is it. You get that your agent says the deal is done. You have a publisher yeah. after all these years yeah. of um, wanting yeah. to do this.
3: Well, and I, the other thing is, I should say is I'd actually met some of the editors who were interested before the bidding. Like when they were interested, then I went to New York and met some people and talked to them. So I had a sense of who I thought I was going to want to work with.
1: And So you actually you know. kind of got to interview them
3: yeah I mean it was like a mu you know it was sort of a um, well, I think they were kind of you know you know i mean you know it's just a but you know you want to like really click with your editor right. and make sure that you that your editor has the same sense of the book that you do because um <clears throat> I am a big believer in great editing, but you know if the editor has a very different idea about the kind of book it wants to be, then you know you're gonna be butting heads constantly, but um but I'm, I feel really lucky because I love my editor. Um,
2: Who's your editor?
3: Her name is Andrea Walker. She's at the Penguin Press. She's totally brilliant. And she is just a lovely, nice person, and she's a total delight to work with. And right from the start, I just knew that she got exactly what I was trying to do and that, you know, I just felt like I've been in great hands from the moment I sold the book. So. Um, she's shepherded it into the world, like really beautifully. And the book got so much better with her edits. Um, she sent me this editorial letter, maybe, I don't know, three weeks or something after, after I sold it. And it was just, so, it was just so spot on. You know, I read it. I was like, ah, like what great notes. You know, That's a nice dreamy. feeling.
1: Yeah. It's a nice feeling. Yeah. It was like, totally
3: like- was like, okay, this is going to be good. Like I know how to fix this, you know?
1: Right. Right. Well, just to, just to have somebody who gives it that good of a read, and then also to like, I always had that. Feel, like, I always had the feeling of some. It's like somebody saving you from yourself. Like, oh, thank you, thank
3: yes, you, for, thank yes, yes, yes. Not but letting
1: yes. me make that mistake, or you know, whatever. You know.
3: Right, and that reason alone is why I would never want to self-publish, just because. I'm like, but editors are such a great thing. <laughs>
2: you need a check.
3: Everyone can benefit from an outside. You know. A review saying you know what I don't think you really need this scene or you know what you actually need there's a scene you do need um anyway
1: well so what did you do when you finally closed did you go out and like celebrate it all or do you not allow um, yourself that kind of
3: <laughs> yeah uh, did I celebrate I don't oh I think I remember actually I had already planned to have dinner with two friends in Baltimore that night, so I didn't.
1: I was going to say. I was going to say. Did you read a book about like uh, the history <laughs> of AIDS or something? <laughs> <laughs>
3: yeah, and then I decided to watch a film about nuclear annihilation. <laughs> no, I um, uh, I I did end up having dinner with two friends in Baltimore that night, but it wasn't you know, so it sort of turned into a little bit of a celebration, but it it was more just a coincidence. But because it's true, I probably wouldn't have celebrated in any in any um major way but
1: so, um so austere did so did you feel like <laughs> did you feel like okay this is it it happened this is supposed to be like that I, I knew this was going to happen or was it the sense that like you know like, I, I have a friend who uh what's the way he put it he's like i feel like the the dog that got adopted from the shelter like moments before the kill <laughs> <It was laughs> a little bit dramatic but you know what i'm saying it's that feeling of like oh my god i just got in you know they, they just swept me under the door at the last moment like how did you feel about getting to that, like, particular summit or
3: finish line? I didn't – I mean, I honestly felt like the real summit for me was finishing the book, not selling the book. You know what I mean? Like, I – because, again, I have so much self-doubt that I think getting over the hurdle of my self-doubt enough to even stick with the book to finish it, to me, felt like a much bigger hurdle. You know what I mean? so when my agent said, this is ready to go out, that's when I really felt like – that was the part that was really exciting to me because
1: I was like, oh my God, I wrote a book. <laughs> yeah, I mean? Yeah. Well, and so and like, um, regarding that self-doubt, like to, to push through all that, like do you have like, I mean, are you going to a shrink or do you have like books? Oh yeah. You...
3: Hell yeah. I go to a shrink.
1: Okay. So like you have I'm help.
3: suspicious of any writer who doesn't go to a shrink.
1: I need do you to, go to a shrink? I need to go. Give me your shrink's um, number.
3: You, yeah. So you can do long distance calls from
1: LA. I don't know. Do they do phone I've, calls?
3: I, um, yeah, I, I think shrinks are a good thing. Yes. Um, I've seen many shrinks over the years. I think it's a good, I think it's a good thing to, um, you know, talk about all your anxiety and self doubt.
1: So okay, so, and like not to, I don't want to. So
3: yeah, so I really no, but really I am my own worst enemy. So finishing it for me was because I decided after kind of spinning my wheels on this book for a few years, I just decided at the beginning of 2011 that I was going to finish it at the end of 2011, and I just was worked like a crazy person that year and basically just was like, that's it, no excuses, you're doing this, you know? It was like a little engine that could, you know, like, I think I can, I think I can.
2: I read that. And so I sweet. did it.
3: I met I met my personal deadline, and I finished it, and my agent said it was done and ready to go out, and so that was that was like the really victorious moment for me.
1: Yeah. So, and so, then ter-
3: yeah, it was nice. Of- it was nice that it sold and it was nice that it sold quickly, but, um, and I'm not saying that that felt inevitable, but it was more, you know, I, I already felt like I'd passed the big test.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, and for anybody out there who's listening, who like might be, uh, <laughs> struggling with like similar self doubt or, you know, frustrated in their, uh, writing, you know, it, right. are there specific things that you did that helped you push through, or helped you sit down and just say, "Okay, you know, I'm gonna."
3: Well, sh- one sh- thing I did that was hugely helpful is my friend Laura Vandenberg. Have you ever met her or talked to her for your?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, we featured her on the Nervous Breakdown before.
3: Okay, excellent. Well, so Laura, who is a very good friend of mine, from um, we originally met at the Sewanee Writers Conference a few years ago. Um, she and I were both. um trying to write these novels and we were both kind of like oh you know we're comfortable with short stories like oh a novel like we were both sort of struggling and so we made this little deal with ourselves that we would send each other new pages every Sunday and we didn't even read them it was just like the rule was you had to send a Word document with 10 new pages to the other person on Sunday and it was great it was just this little made up deadline you know to kind of keep us moving forward and knowing that she was struggling and doing the same thing was hugely helpful. And it was like, I didn't, I, because one of the things I have trouble with is there are some people who can just sort of get it all down and then revise it. But I'm actually, even though know, I revise a lot. I can't even keep going if I'm not happy with the tone and the, if it's like not sounding good, then I just, I can't sort of power through. I have to like be happy with the rhythm of, you know, how it's going. So, um, so I was kind of stuck, you know, not moving forward enough. And, and because of this little project with Laura, I think I kind of pushed through the place where I was stuck because I just had to produce new pages, you know? Yeah, just like so this. So basically dra- deadlines are my friend, and I didn't have a real deadline, but we created this deadline for each other.
1: Well, and so. just like a little bit of social pressure and accountability. It's never, yeah, it's not exactly. A bad, it's not a bad thing, you know? Yeah.
3: But it was great because it was social pressure and accountability, but at the same time... There was no judgment because we weren't reading the pages. We were just... <laughs> right.
1: You had no idea how bad they were. It was fantastic.
3: Right. It was really great. But um, so that was hugely helpful. And, um, and, you know, and I just think it's good. I have a lot of friends who are writers, and I think it's really nice to be able to talk to people who get exactly what it feels like after a good writing day and after a bad writing day and who kind of understands the neuroses of you know feeling like you're not producing enough or or whatever um so i felt like i had people i could talk to about all that you know?
1: well i'm glad that i caught you on a good writing day i think it's oh, a fortunate thing and uh, i i think <laughs> i congratulate you on the uh, on the novel and all of its success thank you I, well, thank I wish you. i wish you well on whatever is next well
3: thank you so much for chatting with me it was so fun
1: Okay, folks, that's it. That is Elliot Holt. Go get her novel, You Are One of Them. It is available now from Penguin. You can find Elliot online at elliotholt.com. She's on the Twitter, at Elliot Holt, and uh, I believe she has a Tumblr. And maybe she's on Facebook. Is she on Facebook? I can't remember. Did we talk about her being on Facebook? I can't recall. Thanks to Alexander Maxick as well. Go get his novel, A Marker to Measure Drift. Uh, once again, it's due out from Knopf on July 30th, 2013. And uh, once again, this is the July selection of the TNB Book Club, which you can sign up for over at the nervousbreakdown.com. Thanks to Kill Rockstars, as always, for the good music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. And uh, hey, don't forget to get the app, the free official Other People app. It's the official app of this program, and it is available now for your iPhone, iPad, iPod Touch, or Android device. It's the best way to listen to this show. New episodes automatically upload to the app. You can download episodes to listen to offline. You can favorite your favorite episodes and you can access premium content and the full archives all via the app. So please go get that. The app itself is free. Uh, Okay. So lovely and talented. Alexander Maxick is lovely Uh, And talented. He's a lovely man and talented. He has a penetrating gaze. (laughs) Uh, So maybe the answer for me is just to call my male guests lovely and talented as well. Maybe that's the age we live in, a gender neutral age. And you know what? I think I've talked about this before. And I believe if my memory serves me, I introduced Sam Lipsight as lovely and talented. You know, I'm pro-woman. I'm pro I love women. I grew up in a house full of women. Uh, perhaps I'm just a little old school. You know, once again, I'm not using the word lovely to mean uh, hot. I don't mean it in a salacious manner. Uh, I mean it in a more old-fashioned way, a gentlemanly way. You know, maybe we're in a different age. Maybe I am... Uh, a living anachronism and the world is just passing me by while people look on in quiet sadness. Please remember that Galileo died blind and that O. Henry died broke. That is it for now. Thank you for being here. Thanks to my guests. Uh, I will be back in a few days with another conversation with another author, uh, just for you, my listeners, my lovely and talented listeners. Do You hear that dog? There's a dog barking. You're lovely uh, people, all of you out there, and you're talented. Doesn't that feel good? Do you like hearing that?